Well, I'm excited about that announcement, Ticat game. What was it, Faith and Family? Um, I'm excited about that because I'm a huge football fan. This time of year is really exciting for football fans because uh, football st- NFL football starting. CFL's already started. I'm more of an NFL guy, but I'll watch just about anything. So I'm looking forward to taking my son to that game, uh, the Ticat game, and having some fun with that. Hopefully I'll see some of you. Uh, this week I have a fantasy football draft for NFL. So those of you who are getting into that, it is the season starting to get pumped for September. And that's always an exciting season here at the church as well as people mentioned, uh, we start to kick things up a notch in terms of our programming and um, seeing some students around and getting on campus there in McMaster. Uh, So that's exciting. But uh, as much as I like football, my first love was always baseball, sports-wise, because my wife's here. She's my first and only love. But sports-wise, my first love was baseball. Growing up, I was a baseball nut. I would watch, if I could watch every night I watched baseball, I would watch it. I was the kind of kid, this is kind of nerdy, but I could pretty much tell you the stats of all the Blue Jays players at any given time during the year because I was so tuned into it. Like, these are batting averages and how many home runs people have hit. Uh, I loved watching baseball. I loved playing baseball. And there was something that happened in my mind that I know is not normal, but I just got so locked into baseball, so excited um, that the night before a game that I was playing in, um, my parents, it wasn't uncommon for them, just I think they started to expect it, that it was possible that I would wake up the entire family in the middle of the night because I would be having these powerful dreams about playing baseball. So I'd be yelling at an umpire or just, you know, uh, right into the game. I would sleepwalk sometimes. I think one time they found me with my baseball glove fast asleep, but trying to go out into the backyard and play baseball. I was just super into it. I loved playing baseball. And I can remember this one time when we were still kids, but you know that, that age where you're, you're having fun with the game and you're still learning, but you're starting to get good. So winning matters and playing well matters and the pressure sort of increases a little bit. So we were sort of at this stage in life and I was playing on a good team, but again, we're still learning the game. So one of the hardest parts of playing baseball, at least I found and we found on our team, was fielding ground balls. So you're out in the field, you got your glove on, you got to be ready to catch whatever ball comes to you and throw somebody out. And the ground ball, somebody hits it and it's bouncing along the ground and you got to bend over, pick it up and throw it to the base. Now that sounds kind of easy, especially if you're, you're not a baseball player, but it's actually a lot harder to catch a ball. It's not like somebody's throwing it at eye level. The ground is always uneven, so sometimes it bounces really high, sometimes it bounces low. Sometimes you think it's going to bounce here, but it bounces there. It's like this real focused thing. So we were one day having this practice and trying to learn it, and we were practicing ground balls, and our team was terrible at ground balls. So we had this coach, uh, and I'm going to say some not-so-nice things about this coach, but he was a volunteer, some kid's dad, probably trying his best, and the coaches are hitting ground balls to us, and we're out there, and we're fumbling them, and we're missing them, and they're going between our legs, and things aren't going well, and I don't know if this was strategic, an on-purpose thing for the coach, or I don't know if this was just somebody's dad, and he had a bad week, and he's out there not getting paid to hang out with these little kids, and they're not doing well, but all of a sudden, he gets really loud, and what seemed like really angry, and he kind of stopped the practice, and he just gave it to us. You guys need to focus, and you need to watch the ball, and he said, listen, when you're out there, and it's it's game time, there's nobody that can help you if the ball gets hit to you. It's just you, so you got to be dialed in, and you got to do it this way and that way, and we were all like, like, this is really intense, again, for little kids trying to learn the game, just figure things out, And I think probably in his mind, he's thinking, listen, you guys, you're out there picking dandelions. This isn't baseball. Pay attention already, right? 
we're going to do better, and then you're going to have fun because you're going to win more games, all this kind of stuff. Here's what happened, though, at least in the short term. We got worse at ground balls. Because, like, you're out there, so now it's game time, and the lights are on, and everybody's watching, and your family's out there, and you're standing there. Baseball is a team sport, but baseball's very individual, right? Because it's right. What he said is when somebody hits you the ball, there's nobody there to help you. If it's hit to you, it's just you, and you miss it or you catch it, it's, it's just you. So now, all of a sudden, every time some, some ground ball gets hit to one of our players, it's like everybody's deer in the headlights, like, everybody's watching, and we're going to lose if I don't catch it, and there's all this pressure and all this, like, it's only me out here. And so what I'm sure he thought would be a motivator for us actually became a hurdle for us, because now you're just the pressure, and you're thinking this, and how do I get over this? And you can see examples of this in all kinds of sports, right? The tough coach. And he just wants you to be tough. And so he thinks the tougher that he is, the tougher you'll get. I'm going to be hard on you so that you learn and so that you get better. Parents, does that sound familiar at all? If I'm tough, I'm, I'm tough on my kids. But I'm tough on them because I want so much good. You know, there's a good motive. I want them to learn. I want them to all this kind of stuff. Well, research has shown, and maybe this shouldn't be a shocker, that that kind of motivation in the long term really doesn't work. There was a book recently written by a performance coach, Steve Magnus, and he says this about toughness and about, you know, picture that coach who's, who's yelling at his players and smacking them on the head and, and, and not giving them any mercy. He says, real toughness is experiencing discomfort or distress stress, leaning in, paying attention, and creating space to take thoughtful action. It's maintaining a clear head to be able to make the appropriate decision you can. And research shows that this model of toughness is more effective at getting results than the old one. In other ways, in other words, being yelled at and, and having someone kind of just, just deflate us and pour pressure on us and make us feel like we're, we're not doing good enough and that we just got to tough it out and we just got to fake it till we make it. And even if you're terrified, you just got to stand up and do it. That, that that whole model, which was, you know, very popular for a long time, really doesn't lead to getting better results. And actually, what happens is if you follow some of these athletes around, uh, years down the road, we find out that, that their lives, you know, for people who've been really steeped in this, like high-level athletics, they've become to think this way, and they're living lives that actually are codependent, insecure, driven by a lot of fear, and needing somebody to, to kind of have that control in their lives. And we find it's actually really not healthy at all. And it doesn't really get the results anyway. And then I'm wondering, is it possible that many of us and many of our churches have approached our faith in a similar way? That we have used uh, control or guilt or shame or this very heavy-handed, I'm going to tell you exactly what you need to believe and exactly what you need to do type of, of, of motivation. And maybe, probably because in a lot of ways, we care about people and we want them to change and we, we want them to grow. We want them to be in a different place than they were. We want that for ourselves. I want to be in a different place than I am now. I want to be more mature. I want to be able to do things that I haven't been able to do that are good. But in doing that, the way that we've done it with this kind of controlling or guilt-laden, or shame-filled tactics that actually we're not helping one another grow at all. You know, some of us, I think we believe that the choices we make, we're very logical people, 
right? I do what I want to do because I think it through and I make the best choice uh, because I take data in or maybe for some of us in a religious context because I read the Bible and I decide what's right or what's wrong and how I should live and, and we're very logical about it. Well, the research is also showing that that's not really true either, that we're not nearly as logical as we are. In fact, um, uh, ads will tell you this, right? Do you know why you buy what you buy? Why you spend money on things that you spend money on? Yes, sometimes it's probably because you're logical about what you need and all that kind of stuff. But I think advertisers realize that there are two very basic emotions that drive how we spend our money. And bigger than that, how we make our decisions, whether it's how we spend our money, how we live out our faith. And it's these two things. Our decision-making is disproportionately influenced by I want and I fear. That's why every ad you see, so every ad that pops up on your news feed, uh, on Instagram, on wherever you're looking for your news and all that kind of stuff, is probably going to be directed to one or both of these deep emotions that we all have, I want, and so you might not really need, you might not really be able to afford, but if a company can really get into that emotion of, oh, you want and you want more and we can give you, and then I fear I fear insecurity, I fear being alone, I fear not having enough, I fear missing out. And if they can play on those two big emotions, advertisers know that they can get to us. And again, I think that's important for us in our faith, because uh, as we work through sort of our motivations, think about how we change or don't change, think about how we are to grow. We may, and you may have experienced this sometimes, have sat in church and felt like, man, I'm being guilted, I'm being shamed. Uh, it feels like there's this, this really heavy-handed way of uh, someone trying to get me to change or to grow. And at the core of it, what, what we're really struggling with is the I want and I fear. And I think a lot of those motivations come from I fear. We fear the decisions that we're going to make. We fear the decisions other people are going to make. We fear uh, what our teenagers are going to do and what they're going to decide to live our lives. And we fear, are they going to grow up and are they going to make good decisions? We fear outsiders. We fear people that are different from us. We fear that we're not secure. We fear there's all kinds of threats around us. So today, can we talk a little bit about how we move through our lives and actually can change? This is what our series is about, Order and disorder and reorder. And we talked about how order is often the life that we're building for ourselves, the reputation, oftentimes trying to take care of the basic needs that we think we have. And then we all come to a place in life where we hit some disorder, where all of a sudden things sort of blow up, where we start to question the lives that we've built because not everything works anymore. This could be because of illness. It could be because of failure. It could be because of a relational breakdown. It could just be all of a sudden life no longer looks the way it did when I thought we were ordered. And now in those moments, we have the chance to reorder our lives, not to go backwards, but to actually change because disorder is a major disruptor in our life that pushes us to change. We have a choice whether that's going to be really healthy or whether it's going to be not so healthy. And at the core of it, when we're in those moments of disillusionment where we've been hurt or we've been burned or we've failed, I think some of these major drivers of I want and I fear are going to rise up to the, the top and are going to try and get our attention. And if we're not careful, because by the way, both I want and I fear are both really important emotions and they're really good in the right proportion. I have desires. Well, God has given you those desires. Problem is, we're not always good at discerning what our desires are. Usually, we just kind of stay on the surface, right? What do I want? I want some money. Well, why? Because I want to be secure. 
Because I want to be comfortable. I, I, I want to be in a relationship. Well, well why? Because I need to be loved because I have desire for intimacy. Our wants are not bad. I just think we're often too superficial about it. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Fear is similar. Fear is an important emotion for us. It keeps us from danger. So when you have small children, you want them to fear certain things. You want them to fear traffic and going on the road. You want them to fear a hot stove that they're not supposed to touch. But when your kid is 25, you hope that they are no longer scared to cross the street or to cook on the stove right? So fear is good, but you don't want fear to be your motivator. You want it to help you grow, but then you want to get to a place where you're not scared of everything in life and you're able to move forward. So how do we grow through our order, disorder, and reorder and come to a place where we can actually put our wants and our our desires, our fears in the right position and not let them hold us back, but in a healthy way to move forward and to live out of something that is deeper than just our wants and our fears. I was captivated by the story of uh, King Saul this summer. Last week, we talked about King Solomon, and he was building the temple. We talked about how God uh, was just saying to him, I'm going to answer your prayers, and when you seek my face, I'm going to forgive you, and when you turn from your your sin, uh, you know, I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to be with you. You're going to have my presence, and this this beautiful picture of um, what it could have been like for the Israelites uh, to live in the presence of God and, and to worship in the temple. Well, if we go back a couple of kings, Solomon was the third king. Saul was the first. David was in between. King Saul was the first king. And just a little bit of quick background of how King Saul became Saul. Israel had no king originally. In fact, God just said to them, how about I be your king? You follow me. I'll take care of you. I'll give you everything that that the kings of this world give you, but even better. And there came a time, uh, this is the Bible's version of an awkward breakup, where um, the people say, we want to be like everybody else. And Samuel was sort of this, uh, this, this prophetic figure for the people of Israel, and he's wrestling with God because the people are saying, we, we want a king, we want a human king, not God to be king because everybody else is a human king. We can't see God physically, and you know, we need somebody. And Samuel's warning them, he's saying, no, you don't want to be like everybody else. You, you've got something unique here, you and God, and you can trust him. And they go, no, this is it. And so Samuel's wrestling with God and, and saying, you know, he's upset, and no, this is not good. And God comes to him, uh, to Samuel. Samuel and says, Samuel, it is not you that they have rejected. It is me that they have rejected as being king over them. It's not you. It's me, Samuel, right? This is the breakup, awkward breakup of the Bible. And so God uh, relents to them and says, okay, I'm going to give you a human king. And Saul becomes the first king. Now, I want you to listen for a second about uh, the promise God gives to Saul. You are going to be the king, which means you're really supposed to be an intermediary between God and the people. You're supposed to speak on behalf of God. You're supposed to lead on behalf of God. You're supposed to bring the people into a good place. And in 1 Samuel 10, uh, these are some of the things it says. It says, then Samuel took a, f- so he's being anointed, Saul is, which means he's, he's give, being given God's okay and acknowledgement that he's the king. Then Samuel took a flask of olive oil, poured it over Saul's head. He kissed Saul and said, I am doing this because the Lord has appointed you to be the ruler over Israel, his special possession. Skip down a few verses. When you arrive at Gibeah of God, where the garrison of the Philistines is located, you will meet a band of prophets coming down from the place of worship. They will be playing a harp, a tambourine, a flute, a lyre, and they will be prophesying. At that time, the Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, and you will prophesy with them. You will be changed into a different person. After these signs take place, do what must be done, for God is with you. This is amazing. 
Okay, Saul, you're being anointed. You're going to be the king of the nation, God's special possession. This is a huge, huge deal. You're being anointed oil, which, which shows this is your royalty now. And this, this phrase just knocks me back. You will be changed into a different person. The spirit of God, Saul, is going to be upon you, and you are going to be transformed as a leader. This is 1 Samuel chapter 10. Now you are the king, Saul. Five chapters later, God removes his anointing. He still leads for a little while. But five chapters later, just like the first thing that Saul does and God is like, no, 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 this guy's not my king. And I couldn't help but wonder, what is it in such a short span? Could God go, I'm going to transform you and you're going to be my leader? To, no, 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 this guy is out. So I read the story. Here's a little bit of how it goes. Israel at this time is surrounded by its enemies. Everybody's fighting against Israel. And uh, they go to fight their way out. And one of the things that God says to Saul, to the king, is says, listen, as this, as this gets resolved... Like God is basically saying, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to lead you out of this. But listen, when all these other nations, your enemies are defeated, don't steal the stuff. This is common in the ancient world. We defeat you and then we take all the gold and the silver, all the stuff that's valuable, the whole deal. And God says, that's not what this is about. I'm going to be here for you. But listen, it's not about getting rich. You're not going to trust in, in riches and all this kind of stuff. You just leave all that stuff. So they go, they defeat all their enemies, and then they take the stuff. So Samuel gets the word of the Lord and he starts going looking for Saul. He's going to do some confrontation. And Saul's kind of run off. And somebody, he asks somebody, hey, where did Saul go? And you know what it says? It says um, that Saul went to make a monument for himself. Man, flag number one. Your life is not about you. If you want to grow to a deeper place, if you want to get to a better place, this is a powerful lesson for us. Our life is not about us. Our life cannot become a memorial to ourselves. We talked about this last week, building a reputation and a resume and riches for ourselves so that we can really be something. Listen, that's not going to last that long. That's not a big enough container for our souls to make a name for ourselves. So Samuel keeps going, and then he finds him. Samuel says, hey, what happened? You disobeyed God. And Saul goes, no, I didn't. Look, we won these battles, and we're all good. He says, yeah, but you took the stuff you weren't supposed to take. Samuel says, or Saul says, no, I didn't. And Samuel says, like, let's stop the charade here. Yes, you did. And finally, it says this, 1 Samuel 15, just five chapters after he was anointed as God's leader, it says, then Saul admitted to Samuel, yes, I have sinned. I have disobeyed your instructions and the Lord's command. And then get this, for I was afraid of the people and did what they demanded. Because these other guys came around and said, we got to take the stuff. Why wouldn't we take the stuff? We can get rich here. And instead of being faithful, he was fearful. I'm scared of what other people think. So what happens in five chapters for Saul to go, God's anointed leader to lead the people to losing his anointing by God. He was selfish and insecure. I want and I fear. Now, I know none of us here have ever struggled with being selfish or insecure, but can we talk about it today? Some of our biggest challenges and why am I not changing? Why am I not seeing my life different? Why is my character the same now that it was before? Or you might be in a place again of of disorder in your life where certain things have happened and you go, I just can't go back to living a shallow faith. I can't go back to a shallow expression of my faith. I need to find something that's deeper and stronger then we need to root out this idea of being selfish 
and being afraid. When Jesus comes on the scene, um, he butts head with the religious leaders. We know that. If you follow Jesus around, Jesus is this merciful and forgiving, um, inviting person, especially to people who are struggling, people who are outsiders, people uh, who are confused, all of this. We see a change in his, uh, his demeanor when he really gets into it with religious leaders. And I think it's because he sees that, hey, a lot of us are insecure. A lot of us are afraid. A lot of us are insecure. A lot of us have I want and I fear. And the religious establishment of the time, instead of trying to help people with that, was actually using that as a form of control. You can read about, read Matthew 23 sometime. If you're just thinking, man, what really gets Jesus upset? And he just goes against them, this prophetic, woe to you, woe to you. He's just, just nailing on them over and over and over. Today I want to be in Luke chapter 12, but he does something similar in, in Luke chapter 11. And he says things to the Pharisees who are religious leaders. He says things like, you Pharisees, you're so careful to clean the outside of the cup of the dish, but inside you're filthy, full of greed and wickedness. In other words, you're just bashing people on the helmet trying to get results, but you're not dealing with what's going on in the inside. He says, you heap these burdens on people, the shame and the guilt, but you don't help them lift any of those burdens. It's just more of, I can't deal with my fears. I can't deal with my insecurities. I can't deal with it. Well, you're just putting more on them and you're not lifting anything off of them. And that's not helping anybody grow. That will not get anybody from order into disorder to reorder. It gets you stuck in negativity and guilt and shame, cynicism, feel stuck. And it's where a lot of people go, well, if this is faith, if this is religion, if this is what God is doing, I'm out. And I just want to say to you, there's a different way. And for us as a church, I think it's so important for us to say, how are we approaching, how are we following Jesus in such a way that leads us to a better place? Luke chapter 12, verse 22. I'd love for you to join me there if you have a Bible. This is Jesus' response to a system that uses kind of that control, guilt, shame, and is filled with hypocrisy and sort of surface solutions that says just everybody believe the right things and do the right things. You're on your own. Good luck. That's what Jesus says. It says, and he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Okay, order, disorder, reorder. Jesus is saying there is a level that we need to be concerned about our lives. What you eat, what you put on, what you look like, what clothes you wear, the basic necessities. That's order stage. Now we've come to disorder. Yeah, there's got to be something more. And that's what Jesus says. Life is more than all of that. What if we could get over our fears and our insecurities and realize that we can shoot for something higher? Well, how would we do that? Verse 24 says, Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouses nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than birds? And which of, being anxious, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to a span of life? If then you're not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Look at the birds for a second. And he's going to try and reorient. He's going to try and reorient how we look at God and what his orientation to us is. Is God angry with us? Is God primarily looking down and saying, these people need to work harder and pay more attention and all that? He goes, well, look at the ravens. They don't have RSPs. They don't have RESPs. They don't have TFSAs. They don't have retirement funds. 
But when they need something, they go get it and they find it and they have it. God takes care of those birds. Aren't you more valuable than a bird? What do you think God's going to do for you? You feel so insecure. You feel like it's all up to you. You feel like you've got to work harder. You've got to build a life for yourself. And we think strength is building stronger and stronger in our own. Jesus goes, listen, there's more to life than those things. And let's start with this. God provides those things for you. Look at the birds. You're more valuable than the birds. And by the way, in all that struggling, you can't add a single hour to your lifespan, can you? Another translation, this phrase could also be translated, you can't add uh, one cubit to your height. You can't make yourself taller. I know. Okay, hard to believe. Until grade 10, I was always one of the shortest kids in my class. And then between grade 9 and grade 10, I grew a foot in one summer. And then I was almost always one of the taller kids in the class. But what I learned was, I have no control over this, neither do we. So if you can't control it, why do you worry about it? Jesus doesn't say, by the way, you don't need to work. He says, you don't need to worry. Don't worry. You go do your thing. Birds, when they're hungry, they go find something to eat. And guess what? They find it because God values them. And he values you even more. Second one, consider the lilies, for they grow. They neither, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? You owe little faith. Look at the lilies. It says they, how they grow. They don't toil or they don't spin. This is language for making clothes, like spinning fabric together and making clothes. But look at the lilies. They can't make clothes for themselves. But guess what? They're beautiful. You're worried about how you look? I mean, maybe physically, but maybe also figuratively. You worry about how people think of you, what your reputation is, how you compare to others. You have these insecurities about your reputation, about what you can do, about how, how, what other people's opinions are of you. Well, look at the grass. They can be grass and they're beautiful. And aren't you more valuable than grass? Because grass is just there and then it dies and we burn it up. But you are so much more valuable than grass. Don't you know that the beauty that you have as a person overwhelms the beauty of the lilies? To let God speak into that insecurity in your life, you don't have to pretend to be something you're not. You don't have to look like something you're not. That kind of, you know, on the outside is more important than the, on the inside. That's not going to help you change in any of that. Don't you understand how much more valuable? Won't he clothe you with beauty because you're his daughter, you're his son? Verse 29, and don't seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried for all the nations of the world seek after these things and your father knows that you need them. Everybody has these fears and insecurities. The whole world has them. But don't you know you have a father who knows your needs? There's a lot of people who don't know that they have a father in heaven who knows exactly what they need. And Jesus says, I want you to know. People might tell you all the things that you got to do and all the insecurities and all the fears and all the shame and all the guilt. But I want you to know you have a father who knows what you need. And he wants to provide it for you. This becomes a strong foundation for us to actually change. You can actually rest secure in knowing that God is your provider. And Jesus here, I, he's, I, he's not mad about this. I think he's pointing out things that we really need to know. If you try and find security in money, you will never be secure because money is not secure. In another place, he says it can be stolen. It, it, can, it can be lost. It, your stuff, your possessions can rust. It's just, it, I'm not mad at you, but listen, if you're trying to be secure with money and possessions, money and possessions are not secure. 
If you're trying to find significant in your looks, your sense of identity will only be skin deep because that's as far as looks go. If you try and control what people think about you, you will always feel out of control because you can't control what people think. If you try to find happiness just in always feeling good, you won't always feel good because that's how feelings go. Sometimes you're up and sometimes you're down. So let me ask you to think about what your fears or insecurities are. What are the things that might hold you back? And you would say, man, I think I might be living it out of fear instead of living out of faith. Here's a few questions. These come from Tim Keller that might help you figure out what you're really feeling insecure or fearful about in your life. What do you daydream about? Like, not just, hey, once in a while, it'd be nice if I had this or that, but what do you always come back to and why? Like, I just, if I just won the lottery, I could quit my job. Why? What is it about your job? You need to quit your job. Maybe you do need to quit your job, but maybe you don't need to win the lottery to do it. But what do you daydream about? Like, I would be safe and secure and happy if I had this, if this was my life. Number two, what causes your most uncontrollable emotions when you just blow up, when you lose it, when you go, man, something happened, somebody attacked me with what they said or did. What is it that causes your most uncontrollable emotions? Where does your money freely flow to? Some things where you just hold it close, but other things you go, yeah, I spend on that without even thinking. Why? What is it that is so significant to you that that's just an easy thing? What is your functional savior? You say, oh, my savior is God. Oh, okay. But what is it in your life where you would go, man, if I have this or if I'm in this spot, I can be good. I can be secure. I can be happy. Everything can be okay. But if I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do. Functionally, what are you depending on for your wholeness, your wellness on a regular basis? And then let me ask you this. What would we most value if we knew that God valued us the most? What would be most important to you to pursue if you knew that God loved you so much that he was providing for every need? That you could be secure because the basics of life are being provided for you? That you knew that your significance wasn't tied up in your resume or your riches or your reputation because there is a heavenly father who knows what you need and wants to provide for you. And if you really got tuned in what would you then value most, seek after most, if you knew that God valued you that much? Jesus says, instead of worrying about all these things, letting all these things consume you, being afraid, letting people guilt you and shame you, instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Real quick, what is a kingdom? Uh, Dallas Willard uh, says, the range of effective will where your choice determines what ha happens. What is God's kingdom? God's kingdom is when we live in a place where God gets what God wants. When love and forgiveness and righteousness and justice reign. When it's like a big party and everybody's invited to be part of a community of, of love and, and unity and where we treat each other right under God. When God gets what God wants, that is the kingdom. Jesus said, instead of all these things that you, you so badly think you need to fill your insecurities and your wants, seek the kingdom. Another quote from, from Willard, he says, uh, this invitation, this is a call for us to reconsider how we have been approaching our life in light of the fact that we now in the presence of Jesus have the option of living within the surrounding movements of God's eternal purposes of taking our life into his life. In other words, when we can stop living in fear and instead live in faith, we can start looking around and asking, where is God at work in and around my life and how do I partner with him? 
What does it mean to seek his kingdom, to seek God's will in your life? Not on a Sunday morning only, not just in a couple of minutes at the beginning of the day, but what if we started seeking first the kingdom in our marriages as parents? What if when we started to make decisions about where we're going to work and what our career is, uh, the first thing was not salary or location or hours, but how can I seek the kingdom of God in doing this work? How do I seek the kingdom of God in my neighborhood and with my neighbors, the people that live all around me? Because I've got a strong foundation already. God's taking care of me. God's providing for my needs. God knows every need that I have. So you want to get to a a higher plane? You want to get to a a more fulfilling life? You want to have real purpose and meaning? Seek first the kingdom. And all these things will be added to you. God will make sure that you have enough. How would you approach life differently if you had total confidence that God was taking care of your needs? Isn't that just a powerful question? How would you approach life differently? How would you think differently? How would your attitude be different? How would the decisions be different if you just said, first and foremost, I know I'm not perfect, but God is taking care of all of my needs. Jesus says it this way, so fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, to give you life abundant and full, to invite you to be part of what he's doing in this world. And then he says, your life could look totally different So you got to get all the first part to be able to come to this part. This is the reorder. This is what it could look like. So sell your possessions. Yeah, but I just have so many needs. And i got to make more money, and i got to have more of my RSPs, and i got to have a good reputation, and what are people going to think of me, and what if I do something crazy and, and, and people don't approve? Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Partner with what God is doing around you. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a way of approaching life that is big enough to hold your soul, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where do we want our hearts to be? Listen, a lot of religion, a lot of teaching and religion sometimes steals our confidence rather than gives us confidence because it's rooted in the guilt and the shame and it's rooted in telling us how wrong we are and bad we are but Jesus I think invites us to another way of confidence he says what if we started with the fact that you have a heavenly father who loves you and is providing for you and that you realize that confidence comes by letting faith and not fear frame your future what if you started making decisions based on what God is doing around you and the faith that he's providing you and that you are invited to be part Part of his kingdom and to fear not little flock for it is his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So Heavenly Father, today I pray that you would speak into uh, our insecurities and our fears and our desires. Not that those things are bad, but that perhaps they're disordered and holding us back. I pray that today um, there are people who are in the room or people who are listening online and watching this And those fears have risen to the top of their mind and maybe are giving them anxiety right now. God, would you calm their minds and would you calm their hearts? Would they know that your spirit is with them? That you know every need that they have, that you know their circumstance, that you know their struggle, that you are not saying it's not a struggle and it's not a big deal, but rather that they have a heavenly father who loves them and wants to provide for them. God, would you speak that into our lives as individuals and to our community 
Would you help us to build the faith by exercising those muscles of saying yes to you and yes to your kingdom? Would you help us to be people who are courageous enough to forgive, courageous enough to, to give, courageous enough to pray, courageous enough to take steps to follow you in whatever it is you might be calling us to do, even if it scares us. And may we know deep within our souls that we don't just have a God who is out there somewhere, but we have a Father who knows our needs. God, build our faith and show us what life could be lived, how life could be lived if we lived in faith rather than fear.